You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So we are standing a week before Purim. This Shabbos is Shabbos Parsha Zachor. So maybe just some thoughts relating to the upcoming Yom Tov within the theme of our weekly discussion. There's a very interesting mitzvah on Purim that does not exist at any other time of the year. And that is the famous statement of our sages, Chayiv Inish Lebesume Bepuraya Adeloyada Ben Aror Haman Leborach Mordechai. A person is required to become inebriated on Purim until he has trouble distinguishing between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. It all becomes a little bit fuzzy. There's a lot of discussion about how exactly to fulfill this mitzvah. I know many people are very machmer to make sure to fulfill all the opinions, to become as uh, shikr as we can, to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, when it comes to certain mitzvahs that are hard to perform, this is a mitzvah that's not so difficult to perform. Mm-hmm. So, um, not, it, for not for everyone, yes. The question is, we are told that by the Arizal, that Purim is a very high day. A very high day. It's so high that the Arizal says that Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur is referred to as Yom Kippurim, which can be read as Yom Kippurim. That Yom Kippur is reaching, trying to reach, trying to become like the level that Purim is. But Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. And if Yom Kippur is referred to as Yom HaKadosh, the holy day, then Purim can be referred to as the Yom Kodesh Kadashim, the Holy of Holies. And if Yom Kippur, we go into the Holy of Holies, we can't imagine where we go into on Purim. So why would we have a mitzvah to become intoxicated on Purim? If there's any day of the year, we should be sober and try to access the sanctity of the day, it should be important. And, and uh, none of an view, at least according to one explanation of Rashi, were drunk, and that's why that's what um, happened. They couldn't them. enter into the holy right. Right, while drinking. Okay, so this is a question we'd like, to, um, we'd like to address tonight, although that's not the ethical dilemma that we're raising. Um, there should be no dilemma about having another drink. There's a famous discussion regarding the sin of the spies. We, the same discussion is had regarding many of the sins which the Jewish people did at that time. And we've discussed some of them, like the golden calf. Basically, if you look in the commentaries, you'll see that the Jewish people meant to do the right thing. They thought they were doing the right thing. They really believed that what they were doing was what they were supposed to be doing. And the truth is that you'll go around to most people today who are doing bad things, who are doing things they're not supposed to be doing, and they will have all kinds of explanations 
for why they're doing it, not just why they're doing it, but why it's the right thing to do. Very rarely will you have anyone say, I want to be a bad person, I'm looking to be a bad person, I don't care that I'm a bad person. The people who will say that as an excuse, as if they don't want someone to criticize them, so they'll say, I don't care, but really people care. And they make excuses for themselves. And sometimes, sometimes people will even invent excuses. They'll create some kind of um, fictional um, thing that happened to them. Or sometimes they'll imagine that people are saying things or, or that in order to justify you know, being able to steal paper clips, that's always the example, you're stealing paper clips from the office, it's because they probably um, you know, take this from me and they didn't pay me for that, and they, we, we make justifications. Justifications are usually reasons why a person is considered less of a, a sinner. So the question is, the spies, just to pick one example, the spies really believed that they they were supposed to say, stay in the wilderness. You've all heard this famous explanation that the reason why the spies said bad things about Eretz Yisrael was because in the wilderness they had Moshe, in the wilderness they had man falling from heaven, in the wilderness they had direct communication with God, and in the wilderness they didn't have to do any work. If they come to Eretz Yisrael, ish tachas gafno, ish tachas te'inoso, every person under their grapevine and every person under their fig tree, they won't have time to study Torah all day and to do the mitzvahs. So they wanted to stay in the wilderness. So, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, in his Sefer Sichas Musar, says that what this teaches us is that the problem with the spies was not what they did. It's because they felt that they were somehow in charge of the way things should be based on their own personal, private perspective of how things should be, mm-hmm. rather than the rules and the instructions given from Hashem. Hashem said, we're going to Eretz Israel. That was the plan. That was the promise Hashem made to Avraham. And they thought that they could create a new agenda and create a new approach to things. And that's where their sin lay. It was in the creation of the rationale. It was in the choice to start introducing my own perspective of how I would like things to be against the instructions from Hashem. Is that for the spies and the golden calf or just the spies? So the same thing would be of the golden calf. So then you could say that 600,000 personal opinions were all different than what Hashem said other than the tribe of Levi. They knew that the golden calf was counter to what Hashem had told them. You know, when we discussed it in Parshish Kisisa, we talked about different reasons. Either they transgressed because they made a graven image, or they transgressed because they decided to take a, a leader on their own. Whatever it is, they, they, they knew was wrong. It wasn't Avodah Zarah, as we said. It wasn't like pure idol worship. But it was... But it was some kind of sin... And Chaim Shmulevitz is going to learn that the, that the real sin is not the action which they did, 
but it's the attitude that they felt that there was already a system in place and they could somehow create a new system based on their own calculations. And Chaim Shmuelavit says that's worse than sin because sin can be forgiven. I know I did something wrong and so I, I, I repent. But if you believe <coughs> that you're in control of the decision-making process against direct instructions from Hashem, at that point, that person, that's a much more, a more unforgivable sin. It's amazing. It's not about the act. The act is only half so bad. It's the attitude which you have, which is the real problem. So he says, amazing thing. The famous Gemara. The Gemara says that Chizkiyahu became sick. Chizkiyahu was a righteous man. Chizkiyahu was one of the greatest kings that the Jewish people ever had. The Gemara says that he potentially could have been Mashiach. And Chizkiyahu becomes sick and is laying on his deathbed. And Yeshaya the prophet comes to visit him. And Chizkiyahu and Yeshaya get into the discussion of... I mean, Chizkiyahu is at the end of his life. He's about to leave the world. And Yeshaya says to him, this is happening to you because you didn't marry to have children. To which Chizkiyahu says, I had good reason for it. I saw. Baruch HaKodesh, I saw that the children that I would have would be wicked. And they were wicked. Menasha, his son, would put up an idol in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Heichal, along with the Shulchan and the Menorah. He put up a big idol. Menasha was one of the most wicked people in our history. He is one of the three kings listed in the Mishnah in Sanhedrin as having no portion in the world to come. There are seven people who have no portion in the world to come. To make that list, you have to be pretty bad. And Menashe was one of them. That was only one of his sons. The other one was supposedly even more wicked. But I thought he didn't have any sons. That's why. Well, That's why he died early. Well, he would have sons. Right. But he saw. He saw that these sons would be wicked. He was but on they, his deathbed. They were there. No, no, he didn't have sons at this point. To which... To which Yeshaya says to him, powerful words, Bahadikavshi the Rahmana Lamalach. Literally. Literally. Bahadi means in the secrets of God, or that which has been suppressed by God. You don't belong there. It's not your job to delve into a mess with the process of whatever God's plans are. Your job is to do as you were instructed. You don't belong. You shouldn't meddle in matters of God. Then why, did, why was he given the Ruach HaKodesh? One of the two things. Why was he? Why was he given? No, he, knowledge, knowledge you have. He understood things. But... That wasn't supposed to affect his actions. No, but how would you know that you're going to have a child that's going to be wicked without Ruach HaKodesh? Yeah, yeah that because that, that information is available. That information can be figured out. So, 
everybody can in theory it yeah okay. I, I I can't tell you how to do it but uh, <laughs> these are these are holy people they can see these things so Chizkiyahu says you're right you're right I shouldn't here's what we'll do I'm going to marry your daughter Yeshaya's daughter the prophet a marriage between the most righteous king um, well, one of the most righteous people of that generation <coughs> Marrying the daughter of Yeshaya says maybe between the merits of of my you know, uh, lineage and Yeshaya, the prophet's daughter, maybe something better will come out of it. So Yeshaya says to him, "It's too late. I saw the decree in heaven that you're going to die." And Chizkiyahu says to him the famous words, "Kach mekublani mebeisavi Abba." This is the tradition that I have from. My uh, um, father's, um, from my grandfather, from David Amalach, Afilu Cherev Chada Munachas Al Tzavara Shal Adam Al Yimna Atzmo Minarachmim. Even if the sword of the executioner is already on the person's neck, we don't stop davening. This is a very important principle that we have going back to Chizkiyahu, is who it's cited in the Gemara, tracing its way back from David HaMelech. We do not say someone is gone. We might not necessarily use the same words when someone is at the brink as we would when someone is just becoming sick, but we don't believe at any point to stop praying. It means the executioner's sword has already hit the neck of the person. We don't, we don't give up davening. So Yeshaya says, fine. If you get up, let's daven. If you get up, you can marry my daughter. And Chizkiyahu marries the daughter of Yeshaya. He gets better. He marries the daughter of Yeshaya. They have very wicked children, children so wicked that Menasha, the son of Chizkiyahu, actually executes his grandfather, Yeshaya, for um, criticizing him. Yeah. So, the question that the commentaries ask is, we know that there are certain sins for which you get the death penalty for. Not having children meaning purposely not having children, is not one of those sins. It's, it's a commandment, but it's, I hate to use the word, relatively minor commandment, but in terms of uh, reward and punishment, of, in terms of lashes or death penalty, it's, why does Chizkiyo get the death penalty? He's laying on his deathbed. He lost 15 years of his life, according to the Gemara, 15 years early, because he didn't want to have these wicked children. Says of Chaim Shmuel Levitz, you don't get the death penalty for not having children. You get the death penalty for trying to use your own logic and to insert it and to adjust things based on your new, newly creating the rules. You're, you have information, you have information, and therefore you're going to adjust your observance of the Torah based on some information you have. You have 613 commandments. You keep those commandments. The fact that you have information, that's very interesting for you to know. Maybe you should take some steps to try to alleviate 
um, the problem to to some degree, which which was a good approach, you know, to marry the daughter of Yeshaya. It could be that it did work. Who knows what the children would have been without without that? But you don't get to meddle in the instructions of God. That's the that's why says Rukhaim Shmulevitz he deserved the death penalty. So can it be meddled in God's plans? Well, how do you know what God's plans are? So what would be a case of meddling in God's plans? So I mean, let's say there's a uh, a dictator in a certain country who is trying to rise up to power. And I've got I've got some influence, some people with uh, assault rifles or some other type of influence, and I could arrange I could arrange for that person not to become the dictator of a certain country. That's not meddling with God's plans because you don't know what God's plans are. Maybe God's plans are that you should arrange for this person not to be become the dictator of and run this country and start a nuclear war, right? So we don't know what God's plans are for us to try to meddle with God's plans. But Chizkiyahu did. The spies did because they knew what God's plan was because they were told we're on our way to Eretz Israel. They inserted their own logic and said, you know, if we could disagree with God, we like it here. Let's try to make things differently than the way God had planned it. That is very dangerous. Very dangerous. Says of Chaim Shmulevitz, with this you can understand why it's such a big deal. The mistake that Shaul, the king, makes in the story of the Haftorah. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at the words of the Haftorah, if you have a Chumash here. You see on page 1214 in the Stone Chumash, Shmuel clearly says, we're going to read this on Shabbos, and I think you've probably heard this concept before, but this is such a su- such an integral part of the Haftorah, where in, it begins with, Shmuel says to Shaul, I've anointed you to be the king, and now Hashem says, Pakaditi es asher asa amalek Yisrael. I remember, this is the time, the time is now to destroy Amalek. Ata now. Lech vihikisa es Amalek. Go and destroy Amalek. Vahacharamtem es kol asher lo. And wipe out whatever is his. Velo sachmol alav. Do not have mercy on him. Behemata, you should kill. Meish ad isha, man, woman, olel ad yonek, baby, child, mishor va'atzeh, every ox, every sheep, migamal va'ad chamor, every camel, and every donkey. Wipe them all out. Clear instructions. It didn't say, go destroy Amalek, see you later. Shem was very clear. You are to wipe out and don't have mercy. Man, woman, child, donkey, 
cow, sheep, camel, everyone. Everyone and everything is to be killed. This is very difficult for us. This is a very difficult concept for us. If I brought in, please excuse the graphic nature of this, but this is really the, a serious dilemma. If I bring in five school children, let's say a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and a six-year-old, and laid them in the center of a room in a playpen with toys, and I gave you a gun with five bullets in it and says, these are Amalekai children. We need you to put a bullet into the head of each child. Could you do it? Would you do it? Now, don't answer the question. But this is an incredibly difficult problem. It becomes very difficult when it's Hashem who is giving you these instructions. And it goes against the nature of everything we are. We are Baishanim, Rachmanim, and Gomle Chasadim. We are a shy, bashful, merciful, generous, kind people. And this kind of mitzvah, this kind of mitzvah is impossible for us. What would you do? So, you hear people will say, well, let's change the question a little bit. Let's say I brought out a baby crying in its cradle. Very sweet child. But you see he's got a little mustache over here. (laughs) And I tell you, this is baby Adolf, Adolphus Schickelgruber. His mm. real name. If you kill him, you will save the lives of six million Jews. Forget six million Jews. When you, if you kill him, you will save the lives of fifty million people. Would you do it? Would you kill the child? My present self. Yes. Knowing, I mean, that's that's it's a whole different thing. What is it? Yes, because now I know what happened. You're saying. To know these five, these Amalekites. If you're killing somebody, you don't know post. No, that's true. No, we're talking. We're talking only pre-event. You can't possibly know. But let's say you could go back in time. You would do it. You would do it. You would kill the child. It's a, it's a child, an innocent child. He was at that point. We're assuming he was at that point innocent. He didn't even know what a Jew was, you know, anything but his mother, what, would, would you kill the child? And I think most people tell themselves that maybe they would. And so, what some people have tried to explain, and again, people have tried to explain it this way, is that when you're faced with these Amalekite children, these Amalekite children, every single one of them is, has that personality. They would, they would destroy, they would kill your entire family. However, for some reason, it's easier for us to say this about one individual child whom we knew. We know what that person has done. It's hard for us, excuse the term, to believe that these innocent children are just as guilty. Of course, if I was to show you the crimes that they would commit in the future, then you would say, okay, well, fine, these five qualify, but what about the next five? It's an interesting argument to try to make in defense of the genocide 
which is what it is, the killing out of an entire nation of Amalek, by saying that they are by nature murderers and killers. This is what they are raised and trained to do. And therefore, they forfeit their life based on the argument, a Torah principle, those who rise up to kill you, you may kill them first. Still a difficult argument to make. Even if you do, even if you do somehow convince me that that is so, which you're going to have a hard time doing. However, this is tough. This is tough. I'll say the words, even though I don't know if any of us are at that level. It's not your business. It's not your business to make these calculations. It's a commandment in the Torah. The Torah says that if you see an Amalekite, assuming that we're in a situation, we're in a position where we could, we have the power to do so, and you're not required to risk your life, this is not one of the cardinal sins, you're not required to risk your life to, um, to do this, but assuming that we had power, we were in a position where we could execute someone as an Amalekite, we would be required to do so, and we don't get to make these calculations. We don't get to ask questions like that. Scary thought. Because that means stop trying to rationalize. You don't have to defend why these young, innocent children need to be murdered in cold blood because maybe you don't get to make these calculations. Now, if, you're, if that makes you uncomfortable, then that means you have a heart. And this is very difficult to see it that way. But to a certain extent, that's the test of Shaul. We read the Haftar and we go, what'd you do, Shaul? Look what you did. He didn't see the future. He just heard the commandment. And it says, in Pasuk Tess, Vayachmol Shaul v'ha'am al-agag He had mercy. He couldn't help it. He had mercy. Yeah, but on, on the king, who is the leader of the worst nation... I mean, it's one thing to have mercy on the babies, the children, but on the cattle and the king? I mean, it seems strange to me that that's... He was an impressive person. You know, you come into the room and you expect some savage, and here is this eloquent man who's standing there and preaching philosophy and saying, you know, how are you going to kill me? He was, he, he, was an impressive, uh, he was an impressive person, Agag. Somehow he caught... Now, this is the way it works in all the, all the movies, right? The, the, the bad guy is always this guy who's... And the same thing with the good guy. He's always... They, they let him live. Just shoot him in the head. They tie him up and put sharks around him and hang him from the ceiling and put a candle to burn the rope. Just, you know, but that's, that's, that's the way this, this story goes. Shaul meets, encounters Agag, is impressed and has mercy on him and can't bring himself to kill him. But he loved the cattle too. That means uh, that Agag was actually Burger King. <laughs> but we're told, and the Midrashim tell us, that actually there was Agag was not the only one to survive. There was a woman who lived, and they had some kind of uh, is it magic or whatever they had to disguise themselves into animals. Mm-hmm. And Agag, that night, impregnated a woman, and she left as a sheep, 
and carried off the child whom would become, she would be the grandmother of Haman, who did agree to wipe out man, woman, and child. They didn't have gas chambers, so he was going to do it by the sword. But that was the plan. One Amalekite left alive, one Haman waiting to destroy. And we're told that the, that the letters went out and said that the Jewish people are allowed to do what? What did the second letter say in the Megillah? They're allowed to defend themselves. Whoop-de-doo. Like, why is that, why is that great? It doesn't say nobody should go kill the Jews. All it says is that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And what? If there would have been no such letter, then the Jews would have been required by law to allow themselves to be killed? Yeah. And that would have been enforced by what? The death penalty? Right? <laughs> Either we let us kill you or we'll kill you? Mm-hmm. So... Commentaries ask, what was, what was the salvation of the Purim story? And the answer is that the whole thing was the second letters which went out. This is, I'm just telling you straightforward, like simple shot in, in, the, in the story of the Megillah. The first letters went out saying that everyone should get together and murder all the Jews that they can meet. And the second letter which says, and the Jews will stand up and fight against you, basically said, we're not really sanctioning the first letter. If you do it, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. The Jews will be just as well equipped and well armed. Basically, everyone's allowed to kill anyone if you feel like it. <laughs> I'll tell you this, that if I'm in... If I get such a letter, if I'm in such a country where it says that the king commands me to go out and kill uh, certain people, you know, all the people who have green skin, they all have to be killed. And then another letter comes out and says that all green skinned people are allowed to kill all the purple skinned people. So then, assuming that's all choice, you know what I'm doing? I'm boarding up my doors and my windows and waiting it out telling everyone that everyone can kill everyone and everyone could be killed, the Medrash tells us that the people who came out to try to kill the Jews, even though the Jews were going to be defending themselves, were the Amalekites. Basically, the story of Haman worked against Haman because instead of it being a story of the destruction of the Jews became a story of the destruction of Amalek. And very little of Amalek remained. And the little that remained would basically stay silent for a very long time, until maybe the first half of the 20th century. But Amalek left the picture through the story of Purim because of the miracle which occurred through Esther and Mordechai Basically, the second letter going out, annulling the support which was going to be given to the first letters, that was what accomplished the miracle. That allowed, because if it had said, 
you should no longer do it, then maybe the Amalekites would have also held back. The fact that it was done in exactly this way, it was completely flipped over. Then instead of the Jews being killed, we actually destroyed the enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites. That's one surviving child of the Agag, the king. Rebchaim Shmulevit says that the story of Parsha Zachor is a story where we have a mitzvah to do the opposite of what all logic would tell us. Everything in the world screams at us that this is the most inhumane thing that we could do, and yet somehow we still have this mitzvah. Maybe the more uncomfortable you are with this mitzvah, maybe the better you would be at performing this mitzvah. I don't know, I'm still... I, I, could I perform this mitzvah? I, I Ask me now and I'll tell you I couldn't. Maybe if a prophet showed up, I, I don't know. But, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to do. I, I'm just saying that it's because I am somehow failing in my ability to ignore my feelings that I've been taught and I think that I was supposed to have been taught of being kind and merciful and all these other things and my mother taught me better but but that there's still a mitzvah I'm not resolving the problem I'm not answering that question again if you want to take the argument and 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 say that every one of them is a, a Nazi, every single one of them is an Amalekite who would destroy you, wipe you out. Take that approach. You're just going to have a hard time convincing my feelings of that, even if you have an easier time convincing my brain of that. I, I think the hardest part is believing whoever it is that tells yeah. you to yeah. do it. Like, mm-hmm. how do you know it's really Hashem who said that? Like, if it mm-hmm. came to me in a dream, I would think it was a nightmare. That. How do I know that was a shem that? Well, there's to? a system of prophecy. If a prophet shows up in in the world right. and, and goes through the process in the system, and we say, and he, he proves himself to be a prophet, and he says, "Now what?" and he puts up a big billboard with names and addresses, and says, "These are the people. Here's their pictures. This is these are the people. You go kill this one. You go kill that one." I don't know what I would do. I'd stand them. I'd try to hide, probably. But if they point to me and say, "Here, you go and kill that Amalekite," I, I don't know what to tell you. You have to, you have to call up a first. Call your posse. Um, but that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's a problem. I'm just saying that the problem is that we're we're sort of stuck. In our logic. Certainly in the case of Shaul, I'm telling you that that same pain that we would feel is exactly what they were experiencing then. What are we killing the sheep for? It doesn't make sense. closer to what Amalek did to them than we are to it. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Amalek was just cooling them down. He wasn't, you know... Well, we, no, that was what we discussed on Sunday. The reasons why Amalek is is such a terrible enemy of the Jewish people, regardless of the the way that 
um, you know, we might try to interpret the story. So is, this is interesting because we find that David, David HaMelech, commits, I use the word, numerous sins on his level, but still, numerous times, he's called out by the prophet for having done something. Held accountable by God for having done something. David is sometimes held responsible for the death of Nov, the city of Kohanim, because he approached them and sort of used subterfuge to, to take from them. David is held accountable for the sin of Bathsheba. David is held accountable for his interactions with his children. And David is held accountable for counting the Jewish people. David is held accountable, held accountable for all these things. And the kingdom is never taken away from him. None of those sins ever remove him from being the king. David is chosen by God forever and ever until Mashiach ben David. And Shaul commits one, maybe two infractions, and they were relatively minor compared to some of the things that David is called out for. And yet... Shaul loses his kingship. Again, Chaim Shmulevitz says, because the problem isn't the sin. The problem is that all David's sins were failures, personal failures in terms of his inclination. So people, people make mistakes. People do have errors. But Shaul's mistakes were making his own calculations, his own opinion in the matter. He was making conclusions based on his reasoning. Rechaim says, this is the test of the Akedah. The test of the Akedah is, and you know, we're talking about genocide of the wiping out of an entire nation. Is that easier or harder than taking the life of one's own child? A child that Avraham waited for a hundred years. Avraham could have reasoned and reckoned. It's interesting that the concept of doing something that makes absolutely no sense to us can be summed up in two words. Nasa v'nishma. That would be just do it. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be nasa. Nasa v'nishma. Nasa means I'm going to do it and then we will hear. What do you mean? You can't do it until you know what you're supposed to do. I'm going to do it even though I don't understand it. Maybe I'll get an explanation afterwards, maybe I won't. But Nasa, I will do Vinishma, and then I will hear. Then I will understand. Then I will be given reason for. It's interesting that we're told that the Jewish people, when they received the Torah at Har Sinai, Modah, Rabba, the Jewish people had an excuse because the mountain was held over their head. God put a mountain over our heads and said, either you receive the Torah or, or I'm going to drop this mountain on you. So the Jewish people were compelled to accept the Torah. Right? The famous Gemara and Shabbos. Says the Gemara, however, after the story of, um, of the Purim story, the Jewish people, they accepted upon themselves the Torah again, this time without any compelling. And we've lost our excuse. Up until the days of Purim, if a Jew went up to heaven and they said to him, why did you, why did you uh, transgress the Torah? 
uh, every Jew would have come up and said, well, I never really wanted the Torah. It was, it was forced on me. It was forced on us. After the Purim story, we've lost that excuse. Because we learned something from the Purim story. What did we learn? We learned Nasev and Ishma. We learned that we think we understand the Torah. We think that we understand how things work. But in fact, the Torah gives us better information about the way we should behave. I'd like to explain this a little bit more. Um, I wish I had more time to discuss this, but there's a, a sefer called Michtav Meliyahu from Rav Dessler. It's been translated into English. Someone wants to go through it. Beautiful sefer. Some amazing ideas. In Michtav Meliyahu, Rav Dessler responds to a letter that someone wrote him. I wish I had more time to go through it. Maybe at some point we'll come back to it. How the reason why six million died was the result of the failure of the rabbis in the beginning of the 20th century to recognize the imminent danger and to tell the Jews to ascend to Eretz Yisrael. This was the argument that someone made to Rav Dessler, blaming the rabbis for failing to see what was to come. Rav Dessler does not respond to the actual question. But he addresses it like this. He says, do you know who you're talking about here? I'm not talking about the local rabbis in each town. You're talking about the Chafetz Chaim. You're talking about Rav Chaim Ezer. You don't understand who you're talking about. Now, I'm not saying that they had a reason. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying you better be careful about what you say about someone like the Chafetz Chaim, about someone like Reb Chaim Moiseh, about someone like Reb Chaim Brisker. Do you have any clue of their greatness? Any clue? Everyone knows the story of the of the Chafetz Chaim that he once went in to, to visit Reb Chaim Brisker. And he stood there in the room and, and uh, someone asked Abhaim Brisker why there are so many arguments in the Talmud, in the Gemara. And Chaim Brisker said, there's not that many arguments in the Talmud. There's more times that the rabbis agree than they disagree. So usually the Chafetz Chaim would do a lot of talking on the train, but on that particular ride home, the Chafetz Chaim didn't do much talking, so no one interrupted him. Then after a while... Chafetz Chaim lifts his head and says, Chaim Brisker is brilliant. It is more. Chaim Brisker in an instant responded and said, no, it's more. Because he had the whole of the Talmud sorted, the things they agree and the things they disagree. And the Chafetz Chaim on his way back on the train went through Shas, it was 1, 2, 7,000 versus 3,000, 8,000 versus 6,000. He was counting. And after a while, he picks up his head. That's, that was brilliant of him. It is more. We don't understand the beginnings of the greatness of these people. Who do you think you're talking about? He says, I want you to know. As he writes this in the letter. Achashverosh issues an edict. He says, everyone in Shushan is to attend the party of the king. All the Jews... All the Jews said, we have to go 
for political reasons. We have to be connected politically. We have to stay friends with the nations of the world. We're not supposed to... The food will be kosher. Or even if it's not kosher, you know, all these... And Mordechai says, this is wrong. This is done in order to mock us. Because the temple is not going to be rebuilt. This is in order to bring us closer to the nations of the world for us to assimilate. Mordechai spoke out against it. And they ignored him. They went to the party. They accused Mordechai of inciting hatred between the Gentiles and the Jews. The talk around the shuls and the town was Mordechai and his right-wing, closed-minded, ultra-Orthodox agenda. (laughs) Or some other words like that. That's what they accused them of. Because I'm telling you that most of us would be going, seriously, what's the problem? We're just going to a banquet that the king told us we have to go to. We're going to upset the king because of some... Where are you basing this from? Where are you getting this from? It's your feeling? It's your understanding? According to both the Iranian royal parties, they were really, really bad parties. And everybody who had any decency would not go to them. Right. So, wouldn't... Well, there's some discussion in the Gemara, but, but whatever it is, people would have excused it and easily said, we have to do this, we have to for political reasons, it's our job to be in the political arena to interact, and leniencies and halacha can come with it because of the need in order to save the people, whatever, whatever arguments people would have come up with. And they did, they accused Mordechai of inciting hatred of the Gentiles upon them. Now... Fast forward a couple of months, and Haman becomes, well, actually, a couple of years, Haman becomes the leader of basically everyone besides the king. He is the prime minister. He is basically the most powerful man in the land. He is the Jafar of the Megillah story. That's the vizier from Aladdin, yes. So, that's just... That's, you got too many young kids. Yes. And there is an issue. Uh, there is a decree issued again by the king saying that everyone should bow down to Haman. And everyone again bows down to him. And Mordechai refuses. And they said to him, this is your typical agenda. You know, this is... This is you and your crazy religious zealousness and you are inciting hatred. And then the decree comes out and they point to Mordechai and they point to Mordechai and say, you see, you see that you have done this. And they come out against Mordechai and they put up, they have all kinds of blogs about Mordechai's um, crazy religious fanaticism, how it's causing the destruction and the death of the Jewish people. 
This is, I mean, I'm dramatizing what Desla writes in his letter. You read it, he doesn't use any of these words. But basically, that's what, he's, that's what he says. And within a matter of a few days, within a matter of a few days later, they realize they were completely wrong. Mordechai not bowing brings the Jewish people a salvation that they could never have imagined. The only reason why they were in danger in the first place was because they didn't listen to Mordechai the first time. There are two opinions in the Gemara why they, why the Jewish people deserve to be punished. One opinion is because they went to the meal of Achashverish. The other one says because they bowed down to the idol. Um, some say Nebuchadnezzar's um, idol or Haman, whatever it was. The different. Let's go with Nebuchadnezzar's idol. It, they they misunderstood things, says of Dessler, because they did not have Das Torah. They were introducing their own calculations, their own motivations and feelings based of their personal their personalities and everything that has influenced their personalities. Mordechai came from no other source other than what the Torah told him to do right now. Mordechai did not, excuse me, did not come from some place of philosophical knowledge, of political science. Mordechai didn't come from some um, knowledge of worldly literature. He was coming to the Jewish people with a pure knowledge of Torah. He was one of the 48 prophets. He understood what was supposed to be done because he was connected to Hashem and he knew the right thing to do. And Rav Dessler says that it's very difficult for us. We feel so educated and we feel so knowledgeable and we feel so capable of making decisions of this kind based on... And we don't... We forget. We, we don't realize... What percentage of our knowledge and information and feelings and opinions are based on sources that are based on sources that are based on sources that are all emptiness and nothing? Some article you read last week, or some book you read 10 years ago, or some... Why are these valid sources? Why should they have shaped the way that your mind thinks? Now, okay, it could be that you're not a bad person because you've read that book, but it still might make you incapable of making a decision in terms of a Torah question of what does God want me to do in this situation? Desla doesn't answer the question of why didn't the rabbis send the Jews away. He's just saying, you don't know who you're talking about. You're talking about people who were looking at the Torah perspective at the time, and that's what the Torah perspective said to them. And so that's what they did. You want to ask the Torah why the Torahs didn't tell the Jewish people to go? You want to ask God why the God didn't tell the Jewish people to go? Ask God. That's a good question. I'm sure God would like to address it with each one of us. But don't blame the rabbis. The rabbis were doing what they understood should be done. They were not doing this because they were blind or didn't think about or question the issue. And that's all Rav Desla says to us. It's amazing that the question of Purim is about us not believing 
that we know right from wrong better than the Torah, better than Hashem, better than those people who are dedicated to the Torah and to Hashem. Chayiv Adam lebesume bepuraya. A person needs to get drunk on Purim. Adiloyada bein arur haman lebaruch mordechai to the point where his faculties for rational thought are compromised. Because you know what? Your faculties for rational thought are always compromised. We're so biased in the way that we make decisions and the way that we do things. We're so convinced that we're right. Every debate we have with someone, we know we're right. Every time we do something, we convince ourselves that this has to be the right thing because I understand that it's the right thing to do based on my assumptions for compromise. Listen, it's better that I do this Avera than I should end up doing a bigger Avera so I should actually enjoy this Avera and the more... All these arguments that we tell ourselves. We're so compromised that we drink a little bit, and who knows, maybe if we drink, we'll start thinking straight. <laughs> That's the avoda of Purim. As we started off in the class, we said that Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. Because on Yom Kippur, I'm still talking to God, and I'm saying to God, Hashem, listen, you got to forgive me, this wasn't so bad anyway. I only did it because someone, that person made me do it, or I felt inclined to do it, or I was in a desperate situation, or I have some combination of letters that now science allows you to get away with whatever you're doing because you have this combination of letters. Some people have ABC, some people have DEF. Whatever it is, but somehow people are now able to say, I have this pill with medicine which says that I can't be held accountable if I go and hurt people because I have this medicine which says that I'm... Whatever it is, you know, we're laughing at those people. We do it. We make excuses for ourselves. Maybe not quite like that, but we do do it. And so the avoda of Purim, the avoda of Purim is where we come before Hashem and we say to Hashem, I don't know anything. I don't know why I did that. I don't know. I'm not going to try to make excuses for it. If I make mistakes, it's because I make mistakes, but I'm not going to try to argue with God to permit something that God clearly prohibited. Purim is the day when I say, God, you just tell me what to do. And I'll do it. You want me to kill Amalekites? I'll kill Amalekites. You want me to, um, you want me to, to, to daven, to learn? You want me to drink? I'll drink. It's higher than Purim, than Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, we come to God with our knowledge, with our das, with our opinions, and we say to God, but hear me out for a second. And we don't let God speak. And on Purim, maybe if we shut off our own noise, for a little bit, we can, after Purim, recover and listen once more to the word of Hashem. And then, Kimu Vekiblu, we can re-accept the Torah, Nasa Venishma, without my own calculations, without my own cheshbonus. Whatever it says in the Torah to do, that's what I will do, regardless of my personal opinions. Everyone, have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Yeshiva of Newark at IDC Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.